Hey, did you know this podcast has a Patreon? At patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries, you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar and get early access to episodes and join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me. Uh, patreon.com slash scarysundayscaries. Get out there and do it. Thanks. Hey, it's Travis. Uh, just a heads up, you might notice there is a little bit of an issue with Daniel's audio this week. Uh, we did our best to smooth it out as much as possible, but thank you for being patient with us as we work to figure out this whole remote recording situation. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Sunday scaries. I don't think we do an intro for this. I think it's just like I didn't write. I I didn't write an intro. Yeah. Uh, for it yet. Uh, maybe we'll just organic. I was like, maybe organically we'll like discover what works for us. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be more of a a a less formal, uh, more more of a casual kind of thing here. Oh, will it though? Because I have notes. Yeah, give me your notes. I, I saw you. Uh, there was some stuff that I wanted to talk about, including so you you mentioned uh, you're seeing Infinity Pool tonight, right? Uh, I go in like T minus three and a half hours. Okay, cool. Wow. So you have like a pretty early screening, right? I guess it's at like one yeah, or two a, for you. Yeah, I have a two o'clock screening. Okay. Um, out in WeHo, West Hollywood, I think. Nice. Um. I know, I but I'll be getting out like just in time for traffic to get home. So this will be an interesting experience. We'll see how it goes. How have you been dealing with the traffic out there? I have not been leaving my house as oh, much <laughs> as like I just don't have anywhere to drive right now. Yeah. I don't have work, so it's actually kind of easy for me to like. And there's so much to I like. I'm I'm in the middle of a book. I was like writing stuff, reading screenplays. I still haven't finished God of War Ragnarok, so I like picked <laughs> that back up finally. Uh, which we will get to teaser uh, okay. throughout the rest of this episode. But I there's lots of reasons for me, and I like found things that are really close to me. Uh, some friends that like live nearby. We went and hung out with them, or I've gone to like play frisbee at like all the parks that are like 10, 15 minutes from here. Nice. I did yeah, hear about. I I'm, did. I'm glad to hear that you're okay. I did hear about that stuff that went on this weekend too. Like, I kind of like. I, I I assumed you were okay, but I was like, I was like, huh. Like that that does seem like in a weird close proximity to where y'all were. Um, yeah. Uh. Maybe I actually hadn't done a lot of research either. Um. Somebody else texted me. Was like, oh my god, are you alive? And I was like, right. Yeah. I'm like <laughs> sitting in my PJs with a gate like a PlayStation controller right now. What's up? Uh. Horrible, awful stuff. Truly. Yeah. I think I was actually near that area Saturday morning. Um, mm. I went to go play frisbee, and they switched the fields on it, but I, on for me. But I, I wasn't. I'm not on the email chain, so I just wandered to the first field and found out that I was actually at like a like a walk for life. But it was just like a festival. It was super weird. They like there was like a concert stage and like vendors, but all the signs were like we respect life and like all this stuff. So it was really really confused i was like i am i playing frisbee here like what's happening <laughs> uh, <laughs> and well, like yeah. oh no my frisbee accidentally knocked over all of your signs and maybe hit <laughs> your musical artist and a couple people <laughs> but in, in as not in a bummer uh, let's yeah sorry let's <laughs> kick this thing off um i want to start with uh recently seen we got to talk about M. Thregan. I'm trying to do like a hand. M. Thregan. <laughs> so had you not seen it until this weekend? I actually haven't seen it at all yet. Oh, you haven't uh, seen it yet? 
No, but at this point, so many people, people, we should talk about this because people turned out for this movie. Yeah, it was part of the cultural conversation. It's it's fucking like, what is it at? Like a hundred million dollars right now? At least Um, they greenlit a sequel easily. Oh, yeah, immediately. Uh, M. Thregan 2.0. It's man. Okay, so we kind of we briefly like mentioned this on uh, I think it was like the Predatory episode because Andy had seen it as well um, over the weekend that we went to go see Skinamarink. And yeah, it's at 124. So it's yeah, 10 times its budget already. Uh, on a $12 million budget, it's grossed 124 million worldwide already. Um, and this, this which is, is bonkers. It, it's crazy. It's like so. A lot of people were like hesitant to go see it because it's uh, Akila Cooper. So the writer who was on *Malignant*, which I know you have mixed feelings about, that I I absolutely love. I love I love the energy that was behind *Malignant*. I think that it was something that it's uh, it's one of those things we talked. So we just recorded uh, an episode on um, *Willy's Wonderland* too, right? And uh, *Willy's Wonderland* is in the same camp where it's objectively like not a good movie, but the experience of watching it and the I don't know the, uh, the 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 place that it falls into within the horror genre. Um, I respect and I, I love the energy behind it, and that's how I felt about *Malignant* too. *Megan* is a different story. It's by that same writer, Akila Cooper, who was writing with James Wan on *Malignant*. But you can tell this also comes from like her head and like you know the same I think you know bonkers sort of place that *Malignant* came from. But *Megan* is actually it's I think it's a very well made movie, uh, and I think that's you know. The, the early reviews of it, like the whole 99% on Rotten Tomatoes and the, you know, positive reviews seem like a joke at first. But then you go and see it and it's actually like, it's a fairly well-crafted story. It's put together well. And the thing that I keep telling people is that it reminds me of, um, I think we talked about this briefly when we covered Gremlins over the holidays about the, the work of like Christopher Columbus, right? Those scripts that he wrote um, that were directed by other people. Those scripts, you know, the Goonies, Small Soldiers and stuff, they have this energy of being in the movie universe, right? Where it seems it seems as if in modern times we're kind of we're, we're leaning more into this trend in writing of uh, holding things to too high of a sort of like a hyper-realistic standard where we want our stories to be grounded in sort of in reality and logic and the way that people actually behave. But for, for movies and fiction and narrative, much of the time that's not, the, that's not entertaining. That's not fun to watch. And I think Megan embraces that and has a movie logic about its story that is is funny and silly, but also works really well for it. And I think that's why it's a good movie. Well, and it probably speaks to a larger trend reflecting among audiences is just like the di- like the dichotomy of what people are watching. I mm-hmm. think too some of what we're teeing off of and just kind of explaining is like you know we came off the era of like golden tele like prestige television. Um, and like hardcore crime dramas and things, TV shows that were like literary. That's the word I always right. use. And I'm like, oh, this is like a thinking man's show. Yeah. A thinking person's show. It's like and it's a literary nature, show. That stuff is grounded in reality because it, it's it's a very right. like unflinching it's, portrayal of the human condition kind of thing. But I and I think too, like it's kind of funny we talk about it, right? Like even the fantasy stuff like Game of Thrones was notorious for being a little more like anyone could go. Mm-hmm. Um, up to a certain extent. And I think too, like, it's fair to say that that was the con- like conversation dominating like element of media at the time. But there's always the reactionary element of what is fun, what is campy, like what is out there, what is wild. 
Um, and I think too, like, especially after the pandemic, people just don't have as much of an appetite for like the hardcore stuff, mm. um, like they used to. And so they're now you're seeing a lot of like, like there's more invested interest in just plain old being distracted. Um, the uncharted movie, which yeah. famously did 400 million on a 120 million budget was kind of up there contending with opening weekends during the pandemic for all of the other Marvel releases. Um, I completely and even some people forgot kind about of... the uncharted movie. Oh, we're going to get there. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> I watched it uh, the... Saturday night. It's Uh-oh. my second time seeing it. I've seen it twice. And I, honest to God, I agree. Like there, there's a certain um, level of escapism that when you hit that, that button, the right amount, it's like a, a switch flips. And as an audience member, you're like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, fuck it. Like, let's see where this ride goes. And I understand that sentiment be when it comes to things like M3, as I'm going to call it. <laughs> Because it's just such a novel concept. In fact, I love that people were watching it and tweeting about it, right? And like making lots of jokes. I saw fight brackets pop up about which doll do you think would win in a fair fight? I like know in Chucky our Megan, like in our win. Discord server with like all of the hosts from the uh, from the the podcast. Like I think yeah, it was Blake or Ty- somebody put that in there of which one of the demonic dolls would win. And I I have to argue, man. I think Megan would beat most of them. She's kind of OP in this movie. Like if you watch her, when when you go see this, you'll see what I'm talking about. Like it would take. Uh, it would take a T-1000 to go and fucking, like, knock her out. Like, it would take a, a Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, T-2 kind of Terminator-level thing to to contend with her. Like, she's, I don't know, she's a league beyond uh, Child's Play, beyond the Chucky Dolls and uh, some of these other, yeah. you know, weak-ass uh, okay. mannequins. So, you would recommend, you would recommend, Megan, it, even would for... Would you recommend for horror-adjacent audiences, people who may not be like, I don't want to be scared, I just want to have fun? I think so, because that's the fun thing about them deciding to go with the uh, PG-13 route as well. Um, the, that's uh, true. We haven't the, talked about that. Yeah, it's so it's PG-13 rather than being rated R. Um, and apparently there is a unrated cut that's in the works to be like released on streaming or video on demand or something, uh, which which could work because there are some definitely some moments in that movie that could be way more violent and visceral that they you know they cut away from. Um, but it works. I think it's you know it 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 works for for young you know for tweens or for teenagers and stuff. You can watch this movie and it has uh, enough camp to it to to sort of. Uh, lighten the story enough in such a way that it's not you know deeply disturbing um but it does it all does have a a, a healthy dose of the uncanny valley when you see you know her the the face of this this animatronic you know doll turning in the background it's a it's fairly unsettling but at least there's nothing like this is you know we had a, a lengthy conversation about this when we covered gremlins about you know furbies and stuff there's nothing in the real world at least that is in the same camp as Megan as far as being, you know, like a similar visual. Uh, so I think that saves it. Like you don't have to go around and have to encounter that in your real day-to-day life, which is kind of nice. Um, definitely a slumber party movie. We yeah. can say oh, that yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is, this is a good sleepover movie. I, I want to get my PJs and make some cookies and uh, cuddle up with some pillows and make a blanket for it and watch this with a bunch of my best buds. It's a, be a Yeah, perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of movies that have captured the cultural conversation, we have to talk about something that's TikTok famous, or at least Instagram famous. Skinamarinka is getting has gotten a second life. Yeah. Has got not only, and I know you have your thoughts. I want to hear them. I haven't seen Skinamarinka either. Um, I was busy moving when these movies came out, so I just yeah. like 
was like driving through Arizona when everyone was watching Megan and Skinnamarink. Um, but the story around Skinnamarink is so fascinating because, you know, legendary or not legendary, but this filmmaker, um, I guess, got a positive, a positive TikTok that did go viral saying like, you know, if you agree to send this guy your top three or four horror movies, he'll send you a screening link and you could check it out. And the TikToker himself had kind of said like this movie like terrified me. Um, which Travis and I both tried. This Travis is different. got the link. No, wait. I okay. did not. You're thinking is of this? there's two different movies. Uh, the one you're talking about is Mike Petchy, who did Twelve Kilometers, um, which is a uh, a very different movie that I I actually enjoy Twelve Kilometers quite a bit. Um, Mike Petchy is the uh, he's a director who's ha- he actually is been a, he's been working uh, for a. a fair bit longer uh, than the filmmaker who made Skin and Marink. Um, Mike okay. Petchy is the guy who's been doing the rounds, uh, the thing that you talked about where he's like, hey, send me your top three favorite scary, scary movies. And then he was doing the viral thing of sending out links to like, it was a Vimeo stream um, that right. we, I put in our, in our group chat that we eventually got to see. And that movie is like a, um, uh, like it, it's like a like a Russian uh, uh, science thing where they're digging deep into the earth and they uncover like a portal to hell essentially. Uh, Skinnamarink is also it, it's easy to confuse the two because it it also became famous making the rounds on TikTok. Um, but it had much more of a different sort of like almost like a found footage kind of air about it where you had people that had found links to it to watch online back in like November who were saying. This is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Um, if you get a chance to watch it, you know, you know, be careful because it's like really, really unsettling. It was almost like one of those, you know, viral chain email kind of things, um, and that's how it gained its notoriety at first, and that's what propelled it into, you know, the the limited or wide release kind of thing that happened to it, which I think was interesting, and it's really good for the filmmaker who made this. But and I respect the filmmaker for what they did, but it's. It's a movie. Uh, I just don't. <laughs> it, if, uh, from what I understand, uh, that it's so fascinating to me to see it go as like a viral marketing uh, event like that, um, especially because Skinnamarink had no distribution deal prior to that. And I yeah. remember a big announcement about IFC, which is the independent film channel. Um, IFC Midnight uh, snatching it up and doing a singular like one weekend uh, release for Skinnamarink. And it just goes to show that like the value of that uh tiktok or some of that like that online social media energy really gave it a boost because that singular weekend must have been worth it for ifc midnight especially if they saw a chance to give it one good release at least and then probably a little bit extra time afterwards and i understand it's made the rounds in some of the horror circles you know, my Twitter feed is was blowing up at one point just of people like watching it's, it and getting able to see it. It's the thing to talk about right now. Like, it's definitely the thing where it's like, I, you know, I feel like it's, you know, Barbarian had this same sort of trajectory where it's it becomes, you know, like I we've talked about like the horror uh, subreddit uh, on Reddit where yeah. there's, there's a couple of things that become the topics where then like for a few weeks, literally every post, every two or three posts is about that one movie. It was Barbarian for a while. And now it seems it's like Skinnamarine because this is a very... This is a very polarizing movie because I think people who are who who like horror auteur you know stuff are trying to force themselves to say that they like it, um, and it's it's one of the like I most of the time like I think you you know of all the episodes we've recorded and of all the stuff we've talked about I err ten you know more so on the side of just enjoying anything that gets made and I I love film and I love watching stuff. Very rarely do I see something where 
the the cynical side of me comes out and I'm like, you know, because especially with something like this, where what I fear for this particular movie is the nature of the trajectory that it had. So this movie was made on a $15,000 budget, right? A micro budget, basically a non-existent movie. Uh, Kyle Edward Ball is the writer and director and filmmaker who put this together. It's a bunch of like experimental sort of cinematography um, it's made over a million dollars now. It's made $1.5 million just from the the weird internet phenomena that happened that propelled it into some theaters giving it a limited release. Like here in Texas, you know, we saw it, uh, me and Andy saw it over at uh, Texas Theater because they were doing some screenings. They did like a whole week, whole weekend of it. Um, and then even Alamo Drafthouse had some screenings uh, over uh, here in like North Dallas and stuff. And that's awesome for Kyle Ball. Like, I think that's amazing for him. And I think it's it's a really uh, heartening story to hear about something like this happening, um, especially like the idea of, of a micro-budget filmmaker being able to get something like this and have it be propelled into uh, a somewhat limited release on like a national stage. That being said, what I fear is that <laughs> with movies like this where that happens for a movie like this, and this particular movie isn't, I think, necessarily something that should have been propelled onto like a big screen. I think it works kind of well as something that you watch on your laptop as sort of like a dare or as like an internet phenomenon. Like that's kind of where it belongs. Um, and what I what I am worried about is that this would influence the potential of future projects of this same scale to have the same trajectory. I fear that um, you know some distributors or whoever, you know, IFC or some, some people who might've been willing to take a bet on somebody making a movie on, you know, $50,000 who just happens to get enough internet traction, uh, to tempt, you know, the, the distribution wallets of, of whomever, um, those people will see, will look at Skinnamarink and be like, well, we tried it with that movie, which was supposed to be an internet sensation and it ended up being one of the worst movies people had ever seen. Do we really want to take, take a chance on another micro budget, budget movie that doesn't have any kind of supervision or anything? Um, Cause I will say this movie is not, it's not for people who are impatient uh, or who, I don't know. I, I had a lot of trouble paying attention to this movie when I saw it on my laptop back in November. And then again, we went and saw it in theaters and it's just, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a chore. Um, that's, I don't know. That's what I'll say. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Both Megan and Skinner were kind of poking at some of the ideas of virality. Um, like and we've seen it in the opposite effects. We talked about this for 2022 is barbarian, um, catching a second life, getting, mm. getting, uh, streamed. Uh, but this is kind of like the opposite effect where, um, because it was so popularized on social media, it like it boosted theatrical windows or in Megan's case, just extended the lifespan of something that might have been an otherwise unknown like January release. Yeah, but and it's that actually is, because it is fair to say too, January is kind of a dry month for mm -hmm. genre film as we're getting a lot of re-releases um, and theatrical uh, uh, perspectives with a lot of like awards contenders and real serious type movies that audiences just don't vibe with people are yeah. not like you it's i think it's fair to say a lot of general audiences are just not as interested in you know spielberg's the fablemans which is i wouldn't i've seen it and it's great but you know it's not exactly the thing that's gonna draw your like seven-year-old child out to yeah. go see a movie. like what are they gonna get out of that it's the classic um, art so house it, versus megaplex kind of thing right um of... well and even the art house is really a bit more megaplex in some ways like some of the stuff they're releasing 
was big. Babylon had a Wiley's, mm. um, Fableman's, you know, it's Spielberg. The guy can just like make his movie happen in 150 theaters or whatever. Um, and, and so we'll see. Obviously, we're still waiting out on some of the like Oscars lists drop, which is kind of the golden it should list be for today, right? I think awards fans. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had a chance to check my news yet. I've only been awake for like two and a half hours. <laughs> uh, one of which I spent working on this. So uh, I will, when it releases, I will be curious to see if the vibe around uh, Hollywood changes. I don't know what's going to happen on the West Coast. Yeah, um, I'm not like a particular awards chaser. I don't, you know, I have, I neither condone nor condemn. Um, all of these awards they're great for careers but personally i'm they're they're movies and i if i have a movie i'm like this is the greatest movie of all time i love it right. i hope it wins all the awards but if not i'm not uh i'm not upset but all that is to say is that you know these genre contenders were some of the only things out while people were getting like bombarded with ads for you know um a whole lot of other things that were released or re-released um, which often makes January and February kind of a dead season for um, movies. And they don't pick back up until March, even April might be the earliest you'll ever see the blockbusters start coming out and kicking off the summer season. I was so, going to ask you about me- that because it seems like they're, you know, to that point, uh, I can't remember. I, I read this in one of the reviews for one of the movies we covered recently about the idea of the classical idea of January and February being like, you know, the dump months for movies, right. That they're just trying to kind of like get rid of, um, has kind of gone away almost. Like it seems like more and more things are being like released in these two months that even though they would classically sort of just be like, all right, we're taking losses or we don't really care about these. Um, it seems like any time of the year now you can kind of release something and it, and it will come out and like, you can at least make some money on it. Um, Um, yes and no. I mean, a lot of this, just depends on everyone's perspective mm-hmm. uh i think too some of this is case by case um like you're getting like if you're going to release a movie the weekend after avatar the way of water which people are going to have their complaints people are going to have their love but you just don't bet against james cameron like that's just like <laughs> he just yeah. he made a movie. i mean it's it's going like it's making crazy amounts of money it's past two um, billion now i think yeah yeah and uh. i think people like to argue about quality and i think at the end of the day, Hollywood cares about money because it's a business. Yeah. And so I have to kind of like pull that card. Um, yeah. But when it comes to releases, these studios set their release dates, but then they juggle them a lot. And so we're kind of like, we can say they release a ton of stuff in January, but maybe it was just the year 2022 or the year 2020. Yeah, that's true. This is like, um, or vice first, versa. Yeah. Like this and last so year and a half has been the first sort of like real revival since the pandemic of. Of, I mean, that's what people have also kind of like trying to treat whatever box office thing is happening, phenomenon is happening as sort of a, a death knell or a sign of the revitalization of, of theater going experiences, right? And whether or not this is going to spell, you know, the future of, of the, the cinema. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think people want to say the theater is probably dead. I don't, you know, that's not true. It's a business. It has its own economics. And like any other business, it'll, it'll boom and bust. Um, and maybe even get bailed out or not. But I think it's hard to judge conventional releases now because of the pandemic. I think the the standard wisdom is often that January and February are tax write-off months. But that is <laughs> to say Sundance Film Festival is happening right yeah. now. And so the new wave of A24 purchases, 
Apple TV purchases, you know, movies are getting bought and sold right now as we speak. In, yeah, our buddies are up there in uh, Salt in Lake City doing the business. Yep, yep they're, you know, they're Bianca's up there, Barack is up there. Uh, I, I saw some other. I'm jealous. It's a great, great experience. Um, festival. It's a festival that's one of like three actual. They call it a film market. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of film festivals are just showcases, um, but that one can. And I think Toronto uh, are markets. And so it's a place where people go to actually showcase their film and then get it sold for distribution rights um, or start a bidding war, which has happened before. Um, And it's like where a lot of Hollywood rumors come out. So if you start Googling like Sundance and critics, you'll start seeing like the same 10 or 11 movies come out. That is people are going to be talking about this in about, you know, nine to 10 months when it gets its release or six to seven months when it gets its release, just depending on how the studio can fit it into their already planned release schedule. And that's fair to say every studio kind of has its independent arm these days. The, the independent game is just a mini studio in a lot of ways. And it's Um, funny. So this is something like for people, I, this is something that I'm kind of new to as well. And what I was like really interested about sort of the, like, you know, talking about how releases work out and how festival schedules work out. Sundance being at the very beginning of the year here in January, right. Um, It, it is a perfect launching pad for movies to be, you know, picked up and then, made deals with to be distributed later in the year like i guess it just never occurred to me the logic of of having it be at the top of the year and sort of like setting up so perfectly uh you know the opportunity to have these movies get you know all of those different kinds of deals to be released into theaters whether limited or wide you know in september october you know or even at a war like you know oscar season of you know november or december or something um that's something that's kind of new to me. Like it would be, uh, I, I, I am excited to learn more about like the festival circuit and, uh, and seasons for them because it's, it's, it is, seems really interesting. Yeah. And it's always a little messy. It, it, Sundance used to be, I mean, it still is, but there used to be more of an excitement about it because it's where you go to discover films. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a lot of like Sundance darlings is what they'll call them, uh, were films that nobody saw coming. And so mm-hmm. when those guys get their screening, it's like, it's the, the end game for indie filmmakers, if you get you know you get Sundance or Sundance after midnight, you're having actual studio distribution heads sit and watch your screening. And because it's so big, you know they bring in their stars, their director. People are getting like tons of great you know selfies with X Y Z. Like I saw photos of Tenoch Huerta from uh, Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever. You know he's the antagonist of that movie. He's at Sundance. It's like a big joke to all the locals uh, from the city is like, yeah, you'll go to like your local cafe for like a you just like stop going outside of your home for the week of Sundance because it's just packed full of people. That would be fun, though. We are uh, our friend and former and future co-host of the podcast. Blake has also mentioned that uh, his one of the films that he was in recently, Fancy Dance, is up there. It got a uh, got some appreciation from a Sundance crowd. Um, so maybe we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll see that one coming out later. Yeah, um, that'd be exciting. Yeah, so the you know this is the the release windows uh, right now. The only thing they have set in stone uh, are going to be the the movies they've already made. You know we and we have the summer schedule done. Like we know what's coming out. We already know. You know we're getting a Transformers movie. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons just dropped a new trailer. I'm so excited. Uh, we're guaranteed. For that movie. <laughs> you know, there's the Barbie and Oppenheimer wombo combo, which I, I challenge all of us on. Uh, on this podcast to go do we'll oh, all dude. go separately I, do the wombo combo that's uh that's kyra's birthday weekend too those movies both come out on her birthday and uh dude i am so excited to go watch both of those back to back like 
I'm trying to decide which one I'm going to do first. I don't know. Like, we might be, we might do, <laughs> I don't know if we'll do Oppenheimer or Barbie first. I definitely probably will try it to get reminds the me, It reminds me of, you know, when you would go to McDonald's, you buy a kid's meal, and then sometimes they do like a, like a his and hers. They have these gendered toys. Oh, right, choose. yeah. They're like, oh, is your child a boy or a girl? And you get like a Barbie or a Hot Wheel or, uh, you know, a Barbie or a Transformer or something. Like that. And I, <laughs> or a Barbie like, or an atomic bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have a Barbie or an atomic bomb. Uh, so there's just so much to look forward to. And there's going to be some surprises. Here's what I will say is like A24 produces movies, but they'll buy movies. Uh, and so this festival, Ven- uh, Venice or Cannes, like maybe they'll buy it here, showcase it at Cannes just to get like even more praise. And that's when they already have a release date set, but they're working on building that groundswell because they twenty, yeah, yeah, because part of their like entire um, plan is just good marketing, it is like, like building um, word of mouth, which is the thing that drives good ticket sales. Um, they don't have the same backing as a studio; they can't just make you know a multinational you know, marketing campaign with trailers on every single television. They can't buy airspace like you know Fox can mm-hmm. or Sony can. And so they have to go a more conventional route, which is how movies kind of used to do, um, and get that positive criticism, good notes, uh, festival run. You know, their directors are always traveling. When they when those directors get that A24 release, they are traveling everywhere, like talking about their movie, showcasing it. They're, they're, A24 is putting those filmmakers and their stars in front of as many press as possible, especially if they know they have a banger on their hands. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that with Everything Everywhere All at Once, the Daniels. I don't think they've taken a single day off. Like, I'm pretty sure they've traveled the world at this point. To my to my joy, yeah, the number of interviews that they've been doing and like directors roundtables, and I've gotten to watch multiple conversations between them and Ryan Johnson now, which has been really awesome, actually. I know, uh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Shiner uh, was at um, Fantastic Fest actually, showcasing mm. one of his films, The Death of Dick Long. Right, and he was I, I don't know like eight rows away from me. Super nice guy, super fantastic. You're like, hey, um, fellow I actually, Daniel, can I be the third? are you guys looking for another one (laughs) this is kind of crazy i was at a coffee shop having coffee with a friend yesterday and i swear to god i thought i saw daniel shiner walk down the street and it was like super distracting i almost stopped my conversation to be like i have to ask him if he is one of the daniels Hey, it's Travis. Uh, Just jumping in here in the middle of the episode to say thank you for listening. And if you guys like what you hear, please feel free to tag us on social media at Scary Sunday Scaries. Uh, It's one of the best things you can do for the podcast. It really helps us get more followers uh, and interact with you guys. So we hope we hear from you guys soon. Thanks. But Okay, that's enough of all that. I have something really important I want to talk to you about, Travis. Um, I want to open with, and I haven't watched the latest episode, but we're all going to talk about The Last of Us. Yeah. And so far... The, the so you didn't watch last critics. night? No. Well, and I Aww. don't – I typically can't because everybody's trying to stream it on HBO Max right after it airs. Yeah. And so I've had this problem before. I don't watch it live, but they'll put the episode up the moment it airs on te- on their broadcast, and mm-hmm. everybody tries to stream it, and it, everything just gets bogged down. Yeah. There's just no – like, The hug of death. Yeah, exactly. And I found that waiting till the next evening um, makes my life so much simpler. And, and like, I don't want to watch this show and have to pause. It. Like, I want to yeah. sit and watch this thing beginning to end. It completely no takes question. you out of it whenever it's buffering. And yeah, I'm always going to be a Monday night person um, unless I manage to stay up till like 10 p.m. on a Sunday, which is <laughs> rare nowadays. Um, but I just I have a suspicion Sunday nights are going to be bogged down by everybody trying to catch up. 
Um, you know, Last of Us is doing stellar business. Obviously, critics love this thing. It's got nothing but A's, A pluses. Um, series creator Craig Mazin rocked it with Chernobyl beforehand. Um, and, you know, Last of Us 2 was kind of a video game hallmark. Uh, it was one of those games that was touted as like, you know, reforming how we tell stories in video game media. It was like oh, yeah. making us ask hard questions through like virtual one exit, like ones and O's. Um, have you have you watched this week's episode? Oh, yeah. No, I. Uh, so last night uh, we recorded the episode on Willy's Wonderland at like seven. Uh, so we got out of that around like nine. Uh, I did some like quick editing on it, but I have to finish that so we can get the rest of that episode out today. Um, and then I, yeah, like we, I made dinner and then we like laid in bed and I watched the next episode of Last of Us. And I will say, man, yeah, like talking about Craig Mason's experience on Chernobyl, this second episode has way more Chernobyl in it than the first episode. I feel like the first one was to set up, you know, the opening of the first episode has that too, though, like where it's the two doctors or the two doctors speaking to an interviewer about, you know, the, the type of fungi that could potentially you know cause a global pandemic or you know ravage the ravage mankind as we know it and um, the rest of i think the first episode was you know setting up the characters but also kind of like creating the parallel between the video game and what you're going to see in the series right the second episode is starting to do what i think is going to be really fascinating which is sort of paint more of a picture of things that you can't get from the video game like in the video game because you're in the perspective of the two main characters for the entire time you get less of uh of a, of a window into the outside world and other sort of like rational and like logical things that would be happening you know on the world at lo world scale um that would be a really cool thing to sort of like pull little moments and scenes out of um and that seems like what they're doing more with uh with the second episode but yeah i'm i i love it i love like it, it's walking that line perfectly for for a genre for like you know for a show like us too where it's definitely drama and a, like way more you know p potentially more sci-fi than even horror but it's it's got those horror elements in there like the suspense and the thrilling nature of of the way that they're setting up some of these scenes are just i mean it's, it's exactly awesome. well yeah. and so obviously you know the last of us is this big step in another entry into what we call prestige television it's mm -hmm. just another tv show that is just firing on all cylinders and it's amazing that we're taking you know the walking dead came before this and was an entry um that people really lauded and loved but clearly kind of grew cartoonish the longer it went on the yeah. last of us we don't know how long it's going to go but we know the video games we kind of know the source material um, and so with The Last of Us being so successful, so uh, commercially and critically successful, you know, I have to ask, is the curse of video game adaptations finally broken? I don't I don't know. I think like because, yeah, you brought up Uncharted earlier and that like made me think about the what is going to be the pipeline of like video I game have, writing to I have a, I have big a I have theory, all the updates on that. Yeah, um, but I just Be wanted to bring it up because we're living in a new era. We're no yeah. longer in the early aughts, the late nineties. Um, are people taking video games seriously? I think they absolutely. I think that the question is is like what uh, kind of like you know 
like I said, I the, what I what I'm always curious about and what I'm looking for are the the various examples of of when this is successful and when it's not, right? Um, I think that for the longest time we were lamenting the fact that video game writing wasn't getting the appreciation that it deserved. Um, you know, like even when The Last of Us first came out, everybody that had a PlayStation immediately knew after burning through the campaign in a 36-hour weekend like I did when I was, you know, 20 years old in college. Um, it like I played that I literally played that game with my friends in shifts like we we took turns sleeping and then played through it all in one like spree um just because the story was so enthralling um and so like I said everybody who was who was you know we were the target audience for that and we immediately knew that this is something special and it's it's something that like the the story is so investing it's like it's it's incomparable to spend that amount of time with some characters um and develop a story in that way and there are you know obviously there's a spectrum there's there's other you know video game stories that are that are just as enthralling that are interesting that maybe wouldn't be as adaptable um i don't think that every video game should be turned into a movie but i think that there's definitely room uh, to acknowledge that the writing that's being done on these projects is is on a different level and that transfer like adapting it for for you know television or for uh you know for a movie theater is is definitely a, a pipeline that we're going to maybe see more of um because it's oh like i mean yeah it i i wanted to bring up last of us as like kind of an isolated event but what we're looking at you know we have things like the witcher a halo yeah. tv series the success of the movie uncharted even league of legends has its own uh netflix anime that did buku business for the streamer um, we're already living in a live action adaptation of video games in ways that we didn't think was possible. The Halo concept has been floating for, for decades now. Yeah. Famously, Peter Jackson was going to make it into a movie. Neil Blomkamp had his hands on it for a little while. It passed from hand to hand to hand. There was a YouTube series that some people just kicked off because they wanted to see it made. Um, you know, video games are very much alive and well, and probably already commercially and critically su successful. The Last of Us is just maybe one of the first ones to do it in such a way that makes us feel like we're, you know, that this is like reading a novel, like we're, we're really mm -hmm. getting some of the, the, the deep emotional beats. Um, and so it's very interesting to me because uh, IndieWire, Brian Welk over at IndieWire, interviewed the head of productions, Asad Kieselbosch, if I'm saying that right, um, at PlayStation Productions. Now, if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, it's because you haven't seen a ton of their work yet. Hmm. So far, they only have Uncharted, the movie, and Last of Us, the TV show. But before both of those things air, there's a little intro sequence. Huh. It's all it's all PlayStation Productions is the studio that's making these movies. Obviously, when it comes to making the games, that gets farmed out to companies like Naughty Dog yeah. or um, Gearbox or what what have you. But there, as a side dude, note, Sony's. I do want to say, did you see the thread of people going around talking about, like, if you have an Xbox, you better not be watching Last of Us. You can go watch the Halo show, you losers. Uh, I don't know. They're just making Honest to God, I actually, uh, I didn't watch the Halo show. I was waiting for it's reviews awful. to see if I should spend time. Yeah, it's really And I was funny. laughing because I am, like, trying to text my friends, like, are you watching Last of Us? Are you watching Last of Us? And all my Xbox friends are like, what is that? Oh no! <laughs> yeah. I was like, they don't oh, deserve it. No, it's wasted on you. Yeah. Um, but it's super fascinating. Brian Welk talked to um, Assad Kieselbosch, head of productions at PlayStation Productions, about kind of what's going on, what changed, um, and Brian's uh, writing, which I have the article on the show notes, um, kind of links up a whole bunch of projects they have in the pipeline, but. 
previously, before we got um, Uncharted and, you know, all these really great adaptations, what would happen is because Sony, the company at large, owned, you know, PlayStation and also a TV, a major TV and movie studio, oftentimes the the gaming companies would license out their content to a different production arm. Um, the company Screen Gems, I don't know if you're familiar with this name or not, mm. you should be, uh, because you've seen a lot of their work before, is kind of the uh, genre arm, the horror genre arm of Sony Studios. Um, okay. And so you'll see, so Screen Gems famously adapted the the Resident Evil, all of the Resident oh, Evil. Oh, and the Underworld stuff too. Yep. The, so oh, they have, fuck yeah. they have all the Resident Evil films, uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Hostel, the entire Underworld series. Those are some Screen Spider-Man. Gems. Good for them. God damn it. So, Kate Beckinsale, yeah. leather suit. So right. Screen Gems, to, to some success and some not, I mean, you're never going to bat a thousand. Um, has already been adapting video games. The problem was that they were farming it out from the video game company to studio execs who were then turning things like Resident Evil into a movie, which is how you get, you know, eight of these movies, which have absolutely nothing to do with the games, only tangentially by the end of it all. And leave fans a little frustrated that it wasn't more faithful or it didn't honor some of the source material in the way that it should. Now what we have is PlayStation Productions doing it all in-house. And so what Assad's work is, is helping to maintain that continuity, not just of story, but also of quality between the games that they already have and the storytellers and creatives that they're working with. Previously, Screen Gems would farm it out and just take pitches and figure out what worked and go with that. But now if you're working with PlayStation, you're working hand in hand. I mean, we have a clear example. Craig Mazin yeah. and Neil Druckmann, That's what the I was game's say. creator, did a 50-50 split on this. Yeah. Um, with, you know, Craig who knows how to write and Neil who knows his, you know, he he created this game and has the entire narrative in his head, both working hand, hand in hand to give us this faithful adaptation that is just so well received. But that's the thing um, is I think what's interesting about that is is it creates the environment not necessarily to make a I think you know a, a faithful adaptation is, is one way to look at it but the idea of like obviously a video game narrative isn't necessarily always going to be directly transferable to a you know a, a long form television or film narrative because you know you just you watch thing you watch stories differently when you're watching you know film and TV you you like to see more than one perspective <laughs> A video game narrative is incredibly immersive, and it's an experience that is, you know, it's a different medium. It's a different art form. So you're going to want to adapt it to create a more fully developed story that has more going on in it. And so I think what's cool about that is doing this in such an environment that they're not necessarily doing a a direct, faithful, you know, retelling of what's happening in the video game, which is what we're already they're what we're already seeing is they're they're adding things to the story and reworking it in such a way that is it's not necessarily faithful but it is in the same spirit as the video game it has the same conventions and the same uh you know like narrative ideology behind it that the video game had and so it's providing something that it's not you know i think it would obviously also just be really boring to just have the video game retold to you on screen because you've already spent you know 40 hours doing that so i think it's really it's really awesome the idea of them doing that all in-house and having them from the the mouth directly from the mouth of the original creators or you know the at least the network and stuff having that uh, basically a an addition to the story it's almost like a supplementary material rather than being you know just a retelling or a faithful adaptation exactly and that seems to be kind of the the secret to success i mean playstation at least is sitting on 
two successes so far. Uncharted, which we've already talked about. Um, for better or worse, you know, people might think it was a little ridiculous, but it's Uncharted. If you yeah. haven't played the game, you're going to get a lot of that. And so um, that was faithful in its own manner. It's just not The Last of Us. And now we have The Last yeah. of Us, which is like a polar opposite to Uncharted, uh, proving that PlayStation, at least, has figured it out. Obviously, you know, Xbox, we've talked about uh, <laughs> Halo. They're still working on that. Uh, we have a Super Mario movie coming out God that Nintendo yeah. <laughs> partnered with Illumination. <laughs> Which, if I had to guess, would probably will probably do some business. We'll see what the marketing campaign ramps up for, but it's aiming to be another summer release that'll fill um, a, a, a slot. And so now we're seeing like more video game content as like pre-known. We already knew about this like IP mm -hmm. um, getting out there. Detective Pikachu is another famous <laughs> video game movie. Did great business for better or worse. You know these things are succeeding in ways that previous adaptations never. Did. Um, and so it's super fascinating. I'm, I'm like very excited um, to see what's coming down the pipeline. Let me show you. Uh, first, let me tell you what is in the works. And you gotta, you gotta hang in with. There's a lot coming out of PlayStation Productions right now. Are you ready? Yeah. I'm gonna have your mind blown. And like, try to remember this because at least two or three of these, you're gonna, you're gonna like, I want to see this. Um, so this is already in the works. I'm starting with what's already been done and working my way back towards what is uh, potential or what could possibly happen. We have a Gran Turismo, Turismo movie already shot um, by Neil Blomkamp uh, that has yet to be edited, finished, I think, shooting in October, November. Um, we have a Twisted Metal TV show, for those of you from the 90s, created by the writers of Deadpool, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. It stars Anthony Mackie, um, and they've already finished filming, going straight to Peacock for streaming. Okay. Um, now, here's some fun ones. This is where it gets really fun, because these are some of PlayStation's prestige titles. There's a God of War series um, <laughs> already out. They've partnered with Amazon Studios, um, which has kind of made their money in fantasy right now, basically off their Lord of the Rings. Right. I think they have. They see dollar signs in the fantasy world. There's a Horizon Zero uh, Horizon Zero Dawn series in the works of Netflix. Cool. All of these we're talking live action. There is, for people who are unfamiliar, there is a uh, feature film adaptation of a game called Gravity Rush, which I have not personally played. It's an indie game, well lauded, loved amongst the console community. Um, interestingly enough, it's featured with Ridley and Tony Scott's production company, Scott hmm. Free. Looks like they're working on a feature film adaptation. They have a writer attached already. Um, and for those who loved, loved this game, Ghost of Tsushima has Ooh. a feature film adaptation in the works by, wait for it, Chad Stahelski, a famous director of the John Wick franchise, Dude. who has also gone on to say that he wants it featuring an entirely Japanese cast shot yeah. in Japan entirely in, in the Japanese language. Well, I mean, you got, um, yeah, because that So that we'll was see the if whole... he gets those requirements. yeah. Because that was the nature of that we'll game is like it being it. so nested in like Japanese history and stuff. And one of the appeals of it, that's a uh, man, that would be that would be awesome. I'd say we'll see if he gets all three of those. I'm worried because international distribution implies that you can't necessarily right. have it set in any one thing or the other. Yeah. He may have to concede some territory right now. It's just in the pitching process. Um, so I think Stahelski's locked onto that. And uh, one of my new favorite things, too, for anyone who played uh, PlayStation games in the early aughts. Ruben Fleischer succeeded, did the direction, directed the adaptation of Uncharted, has softly said he wants to adapt Jack Baxter. 
And Tom Holland even went on record saying he would love to play Jack and Jack and Daxter. <laughs> is there a rumor? Is it possible that Ruben Fleischer brings Tom Holland back to play Jack and Daxter in a Jack and Daxter adaptation? Who knows? That's just studio execs talking. They're on the press circuit. They ask you, oh, you did one video game well. What do you want to do next? And he just throws it out there. But these are not. These are. Is he going to play Daxter's Jack or Daxter? Cut. Can you imagine? Because he could play that little like weasel thing, or he could play slap some elf he ears has... on him. He could do either. <laughs> exactly. I think. I think he'd be a better. He's the loudmouth persona. Tom Holland is a notorious loudmouth persona. Um, I think he'd be a great Daxter. Lots of quips. Very fun. <laughs> Uh, but again, if this is all just press talk. Both of them, yeah. walk, you know, talking about Uncharted. Oh, what do you want to do next? And they both just kind of like maybe yeah. they're in on the joke together. Um, Fleischer has said that he's developing an idea on Jack and Daxter for for production. So we're looking at maybe a feature film. Okay, interesting. I will say as a caveat, and there is. To... Wait, for, uh, yeah, give your I want to add this. Yeah, this last one. It, this is where it gets fun. They PlayStation Studios says they have ten projects. I only listed nine. We don't know what the tenth is. Interesting. But we're thinking it's going to be a sequel to Uncharted. Uh, okay. After the success of the first one, the odds are seventy thirty. It's an Uncharted sequel. But who knows? It could be any other number of famous video games that PlayStation has popularized over the last right. several decades. Yeah, I will say as a caveat to you know the the conversation about the the the. Um the pipeline from video game writing to like, you know, to development into features or adaptations there. I, I want to, I, th I think that there's two different things going on here that are important to distinguish, which is on the one hand, we do have the thing that I am optimistic about, which is the idea of video game writing, getting the recognition it deserves for these people who are doing the job of writing really interesting and enthralling narratives for these, these games. Um, the ones that are narrative games like Ghost of Tsushima is one you mentioned that I'd be really excited about or Last of Us obviously which has already been adapted but then there is like obviously the more cynical thing that I, I, am, I am also aware of that I think is important to acknowledge too which is the fact like of of studios kind of just also looking for any kind of ip that is established already right like i am so cynical about the mario movie that's coming out the idea of that or like anything like you said pikachu like anything that's been around for more than three decades like there's not there's not an interesting narrative necessarily that already exists in the super mario world like it's it's a fun story and everything but like the idea of adapting that into a dramatic feature is is something that was it, it's it's cartoonish and it's silly and it does seem like a money grab in the most cynical way um so i think it is important to like distinguish between those two sort of camps when it comes to video game adaptations because there are some good stories but then there's also just some cynical cash grabs um in the oh, video game universe. and i think i you know i want to push back against that travis because i think we have to look at just the space that all of this is operating in Mm -hmm. And uh, quality is never the deci the ultimate deciding factor. And so, <laughs> like a thing like the Super Mario movie, you know, I I agree that you know it looks campy, it looks childish. It's a Mario game, like it's yeah. for kids. It's made by Illumination, a kids studio that popularized minions. That's fair. I mean, yeah. they 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 have the world's biggest cash grab on in their pockets, and they're sitting on a new franchise that they could release and just develop it like forever into infinity. Um, and, you know, we may turn out to go see it out of curiosity. All it has to do is great opening weekend numbers. But it is fair to say that the limit to what gets adapted into video games 
may be just how well known the IP is and how much money it makes. Right. And so that may be cynical, but it also may be positive. If you think yeah. about Illumination getting a lot of money to do that kind of stuff, maybe there's the opportunity then that, that it funds future ventures that could be more creative or more mm -hmm. interesting. Um, and I guess seeing... I don't know what the alternative is either. Like, I guess what I, the thing that I am most uh, pleased by or that I care about the most is the idea of video game writing being acknowledged for, you know, the, the craft that it is um, and whether or not it takes a film or TV adaptation to do that or if there's uh, some other sort of, you know, I guess that's that's the main thing that I the, like the the umbrage that I take with it is the idea that I would like that to be able to exist independent of you know whatever economy surrounds the you know the popularity of of you know whatever property uh, intellectual property and stuff. Um, you know, I think that's what I I'm think it's a at, fair yeah. it's a fair ask to say that we would just like art to be acknowledged yeah. as good. Art. That's yeah, and that's a that's the very yeah that's the lofty dream that I that I'm proposing with that one. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm going to let you have that dream. I'll be the one to sit in the real world. I have to be out here on the oh, West no. Coast. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I have famously said to many of my friends, I would happily write, you know, the next IP cynical cash grab yeah. if I got paid oh, tons yeah. of money. No, same. So I, say that, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I personally refuse to sit above the level of how much money is this movie going right. to make? Right. Because I also would like to get paid to make it, even if it's bad. <laughs> I'm in a position where I can't complain about if my art is great or not. And so I refuse to complain about um, uh, specifically about whether art is great or not. In fact, I almost uh, dislike lots of things that take itself too seriously. True, true. Um, that's, that's art, a fair. There's a spectrum of, of the whole thing that I think you can get lost in. And mm -hmm. I was a little worried about Last of Us because the second game was great. There were some moments uh, that my wife, as she watched me play, kind of felt like this was just like, now we have a real serious writing moment. Like, in some ways, it was self-acknowledged. Um, and so we're living in this spectrum that I think is super fascinating. The projects I listed out, you know, we've got a wide variety. We have the Deadpool guys making a Twisted Metal TV show. That's going to be... <laughs> and for Peacock, so it's probably going to be a little bloodless, and it's going to be funny um ghost of tsushima you know god i hope that gets you know that i hope that gets all the gravitas that it deserves a god of war series at amazon that's gonna be are sick. we what are we getting you know are we yeah. gonna get some like witcher fantasy combo is this god of war in greece god of war in because clearly the new games are the best storytelling that that franchise has ever done and we as gamers are in love i'm clearly still trying to beat ragnarok and i love spending time <laughs> in this fantasy world um but here's my bigger question is because of the timing of this you look at the early aughts and it's littered with video game adaptations that we all kind of like mock or laugh at or we, we we all as teenagers thought would be successful and the 90s are like they're some of the most notoriously bad video game adaptations. Famously, the Super Mario movie. Yeah, that's was the one that I was just the, pulling up. <laughs> the, the, the star, the crown jewel that almost sank uh, the entire idea of video game adaptations. Did you did you but not like that movie when it came out? <clears throat> I never saw it. You never I never saw, saw it? it. And I remember watching this as a kid. And now I like absolutely refuse to watch it because I just don't know how to... I, what am I supposed to do with this? It was just... I think the thing about it, when you watched, when I watched it as a kid, is I was, it was just confusion. Like, it was just... I was just so, like, 
befuddled at how this this happened and what relationship it had to you know the right. super nintendo game that i had played i was i just it was beyond comprehension for me and i can't like, imagine being an adult and watching that and having a similar feeling like the kind of creative decisions that make you wonder like what were they smoking you're like yeah. what on <laughs> earth were they smoking I, but i also kind of want to get in that room too just to be a part of like like what the fuck is like who who called john leguizamo and was like this is a great idea well uh, and i I think too that I think some of it's timing. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I want to acknowledge that I think those early video game adaptations, like we talked about, how Sony would farm it out to Screen Gems. None of those people at Screen Gems were really played video games and played the video games that we've played. You know, previously, you know, we didn't get you know these serious, these very serious adaptations until the late 2000s, even the 2010s. Um, and we didn't get creators who knew the content. And so I'm curious: is there a generation of gamers that have finally gotten old enough and successful enough to take the top creative spaces and do these adaptations and give them the justice they deserve. That's true. Or is this creatives who are told you should take video games seriously and then turn around and realize this is a medium that we have been dismissing for decades. I think it is definitely the the first because I think also, you know, there's people that grow up and end up in positions of, of power within the studios, too, are also of the generation. Now we're, we're seeing, you know, members of the generation that grew up playing video games, um, you know, those producers and stuff like they grew up playing, you know, video games and stuff, too. It's like now that they're in those positions and they recognize and appreciate, you know, that that medium for what it is are more receptive uh to the idea of putting yeah getting getting the green light and like putting the stuff you know in production which i think is i think is interesting i think that's a good point is like and then you like you said you have the artists and the filmmakers and everything from the top down of that of it's a generational thing like video games are only becoming more and more popular um in the last two decades and so it's it'll be uh i don't know i'm, I'm excited to see like where that goes and uh i, I want to acknowledge too the video game industry as a whole kind of functions as a much bigger moneyed version of the movie system. It's like you mm -hmm. have your studios that are churning out these big blockbuster hits. They're, you know, doing return to sequel franchises. There's always going to be a Call of Duty. There's always going to be a Modern Warfare. Yeah. And then you have your indie darlings, which are now the studios that built those are getting really popularized. Um, Steam has become, you know, a massive distributor for indie games. So it's entirely plausible to make your own game at home and get wildly commercial success. But, you know, you're seeing like mid-tier gaming costs that become known as indie games when in reality they would have been very average or normal game releases um and i uh i think that people don't who don't know the video game industry i want to say that it's a fair parallel between the studio system like the entire movie industry and what we have in video games just with a lot more money i mean video games on average make way more money than movies um off their initial release there's clearly like a change in how they distribute video games versus like digitally. Um, that is an at-home entertainment industry. Video games are not a theater experience. So they're right. not limited by yeah. how do they make their money back? How do they sell as many copies? Um, and even as some games have just gone on into infinity, how do we just keep updating the latest game? You can't update a movie. Um, and yeah. so there are some content limitations as far as making adaptations of this stuff. Um but it's just it's interesting an because time. I think 
it, it is it is so so much a parallel of the filmmaking industry and it also suffers from like some of the same issues right like we've, we've heard the gripes of you know on the film side from vfx studios overworking you know their artists and like that's why you know you end up with you know sub optimal products and stuff and the same thing on the video game side it's like i remember i think everybody lamented you know the release of cyberpunk when it was it came out and in, in 2020 or whatever um the idea of this being rushed into production like you know into production and release uh beyond what was possible for the people that were making the game um it's interesting it's an it is that's that's an interesting parallel to draw and like and to see how the the different the two different industries that are so closely related are solving this problem differently um exactly and you know it's it's gonna follow the same pattern every studio has their marquee titles their video games that are dropping playstation is already doing you know montage trailers of of the best games that are coming out in 2023 mm -hmm. um it's just interesting to me that maybe somewhere online, if you're playing Call of Duty right now, you're maybe playing against this top studio exec who gets his ass kicked, turns around and tells the tells a writer, I want you to write a character named Gummy Works 95 <laughs> and have him die in the most horrible way possible. <laughs> this is for you, I think, works. <laughs> yeah, there, there's got to be a future out there where that happens. Oh, um, yeah. So here's my, we're, we're wrapping up, but I want to ask, you know, we have so many video game adaptations in the works. What is something you want to see made? Ooh. I have my answer, <clears throat> but I want to hear what you have to say first. I'm trying to think of something that I played recently that would be an amazing video game adaptation. The, that's the thing is like the Ghost of Tsushima one was the one that like, that probably would have been my only like dream production and the idea that that's actually getting put into the works is would be amazing i would also love to see an actual like a good adaptation of assassin's creed um i think the the fossbender movie that we got was like you know it was interesting or it was was what it was but i think that that universe has such a depth of lore to be mined uh if done properly um that would be something too that i would be i would be fascinated to see done done well um uh well, Travis, I have good news for you because I think I heard something. Uh, yeah, in October 2020, Netflix announced that they're developing an Assassin's Creed TV show. So nice. there is yeah. still time for you to get your TV show of Assassin's Creed content. Let's see. What what was yours? Oh, Dead Space. Oh, okay. I would. I will die on the hill of Dead Space. I think it's perfectly set for a video game adaptation. Uh, we haven't seen anything that spacey and scary at the exact same time. I think, you know, if you were to give me uh, a fantasy ranking, I'd put, you know, Neil Blomkamp or uh, Noah Hawley on top of this and just say, take it and run with it. Give us the USS Ishimura. Show me Isaac Clark with his crazy space gun shooting limbs off of aliens. I need all the blood and guts I can get. I think that video game is incredible. Um, it's getting a re-release, so that's another reason I think it might actually be on the block. I think it may be in the development pipeline. Okay. They're out there looking yeah. at pitches. Uh, yeah, by the way, PlayStation Productions, if you want to pitch for Dead Space, call me. I'll, I'll answer. I'll, <laughs> I'll first 30 pages right here, baby. I'll give you 120. <laughs> all you all you got to do is pay and ask. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so, so we have that. And then just looking forward, um, what do we got coming out this week, Travis? Man, Infinity Pool is going to be fucking epic. We're going to go exactly. see it at Texas Theater on Sunday night. And then, uh, so I think me and Andy and Tyler and maybe some other people are going to go see it on Sunday night. I'm going to see it today. I'm going now in T-minus three hours. So uh, two and a half. Uh, yeah. So I will let you know. I won't say anything. I know. 
I'm I'm but super excited for know. this movie though. It's gonna be fucking yeah. I'll, there's there's some very scandalous uh, promotional material of uh, Alexander Skarsgård that I uh, we need to post on social media. I think I, I don't know if I sent you those pictures, but he, he, there's there's some uh, there's some sweat inducing uh, photos that are that are online right now. But we'll we'll talk about that more I know, when, we, when we talk about the movie. I'm honestly debating if I I'm debating if I should even eat lunch before I go see this movie. Oof. Yeah, you might want to have at least like something in your stomach. Yeah, no, definitely. That's probably the wise um, choice. So, um, Infinity Pool, I, I'm very excited. Cronenberg, Brandon Cronenberg, has Possessor was incredible. Um, really hits the nail on the head when it comes to body horror. Um, wildly, the heir apparent. I think I would put him up there next to Julia Ducournau as far as like directors who like you just get creeped out. You watch mm. it, and you're like, this is just creepy, man. I cannot. I'm, my skin crawls, and that's. Maybe he'll make a movie where your skin literally crawls. Oh God! Yeah, I'm excited about it. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited about this too. I, I like I, I like the idea of uh, our our midweek roundups here too. I think this is going to be a good format going forward uh, for us to talk about things other than the specific movie that we're talking about in any given episode because uh, we have so much stuff to talk about all the time. So um, exactly, you keep recording and I'll keep coming up with stuff to talk about. Don't absolutely. worry. <laughs> cool. Sunday Scaries.